You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. If you don't know me, my name's Chip. I'm one of the pastors here. Unlike Josh, my shirt does not match the slide, which is disappointing. <laughs> I know, I know, it's like very timely. <laughs> so, um, no, I appreciate it. I think, um, you know, uh, Memorial Day is tomorrow. We're a people who are defined by uh, someone who was willing to die that we might live. Um, I was talking, we have some friends in from out of town, and um, I was talking with my friend on the back patio last night. He's, uh, uh was in the Army and served, and I said, do you have somebody that was close to you um, that died in the service? And it turns out, I, I've known him for a long time, I didn't know this, one of his best friends died flying a plane in Korea. And um, he said, you know, um, if you're active military, you've buried somebody. That's just the way it is. Um, and we just kind of all know that. It's really sobering uh, for me. So um, thank you uh, for those of you who served and um, who had family members who served. And I hope that in the way that Sundays, you know, the reason the people of God worship on Sunday um, is because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday. It used to be that the people of God worshiped on Saturday, right? So days of remembrance, um, they matter. Uh, Sundays matter, and days like tomorrow matter too. So, um, thank you for that. We're we're glad that you're here, uh, especially if you're a guest and you're here on a holiday weekend. Um, like uh, I don't know, there's just something extra special about that to me. We meet new people every single Sunday, but I think if you're somebody who's here, maybe for first or second time, especially on a holiday weekend, um, we're glad that you're here. I think it's a great time to kind of step into what it is that God's doing here. We're in the middle of this series on the family, which is something that's a little bit um, different for us. I know that the series has just been super helpful uh, for my own heart, and I've appreciated the feedback. Um, so many of you have have sent me messages or grabbed me in the lobby after service and, and just said the way that the Lord has kind of used this series in your life. And so um, I'm thankful for that. This morning, we're considering how it is that the local church interacts with the family. Um, and so I'll be honest, I, it feels to me like that's a pretty important topic. And so I just know that on holiday weekends, there's going to be fewer people in the room. And so I had this thought a few weeks back, and I, I thought, man, should I change that? Like, that's a pretty important topic, the, the role of the church in the family. And, you know, and so then I thought, okay, well, what is the least important topic in this series? <laughs> and I thought, well, that's horrible. I don't, you know, and I didn't, there wasn't one I felt that way about, which that made me feel good, you know, that I was a little guilty for even thinking about it, you know, rearranging and trying to pick, like, well, what's the lousy sermon I can give you all on a holiday weekend that, you know, everybody needs to hear? So I was glad that I'd, my heart didn't have an answer to that. Some of you might have an answer for that. You might think, I can tell you, you know, but, um, you know, wait till the series is over, but I didn't. So, um, and then there was something that happened uh, in God's providential timing that made me realize how important, because um, I planned this series out last July. 
And so it made me realize just how providentially timed this idea of the role of the church in the family was. Last Sunday, uh, the results of an independent investigation into sexual abuse in um, the Southern Baptist Convention churches and institutions was released. Um, And I don't know how many of you, that's even on your radar at all, Um, but it was absolutely heartbreaking. Um, And some of us uh, who pay attention to those kind of things have known that it was coming. Um, And so we've just kind of been waiting for the formality of it. But what it did was it revealed this just long-standing, decades and decades and decades-long pattern of uh, sexual abuse, a very intentional cover-up, victim-shaming, um, the worst kind of institutional self-protection that would just be sinful and shameful for any organization at all, much less um, churches and denominational entities. And so um, early in the week, I kind of had two initial emotional responses to just seeing the news and the summaries as they came out. The first one was just this deep, Um, lament and sadness that yet again, yet another story had to come out and yet another investigation had to be done because people were trying to cover things up. Um, And like, I'm so sick of it. I'm I'm so um, sickened by it. And by these wolves in sheep's clothing who call themselves men of God and abuse their power again and again and again to traumatize women in the place that ought to be the safest. And it just, it wells up in me this just profound lament and and kind of a righteous anger. So that's kind of uh, one thing. At the same time, I was really thankful that like the people that, that I personally and that our church organizationally are the most closely tied to relationally um, are part of the solution, not the problem. And if you read through, um, especially the Christianity Today article that summarizes it that came out Monday... Um, you can see that. And so I think about people like my friend Marshall Blaylock, who pastors First Baptist Charleston downtown, um, who was the vice chair of the committee that drug this darkness out into the light and put out a list of names, which is what ought to happen. Um, And our friend J.D. Greer up at the Summit Church in Raleigh, with whom we are part of a church planting network. And so I felt like, okay, well, if we're going to be connected here. Let's make sure we're connected to good people doing godly work to drag this sin out into the light. That was kind of the second thing I felt. And then in the middle of the week, um, I I just felt heavy because here I am, I'm trying to prepare to preach this sermon on the role of the church in the family, right? And I thought, this is why people walk away from the church. Like, This junk that sounds no different at all from the culture, that sounds no different at all from news about 
Like, this is why people throw their hands up and walk away. Because it's like, how many pastors and how many churches and how many denominations, and like, how often does this have to happen? And I can understand why people throw their hands up and say, I'm done with that. You know, and so, like, maybe some of you all are just coming back to church because you had a moment like that in your past, and even me talking about this is traumatizing. I hope that's not the case, but I'm just aware that it, it could be. Or maybe you have family and friends. Maybe you got text early this week where someone said, that's how come I won't go with you. Stop inviting me, you know? And so, like, can I just say if that's you or if that's someone you love and you're close to, like, I get that. But here's the reality is that if you go and you read through the Bible, man, is it full of jacked up people doing really sinful things while the Lord is faithful. And so I feel like, is it true that pastors are broken people? Yes, including this one. Is it true that churches make mistakes? Yes, including this one. Now, not in that particular area we haven't, but just generically, right? Is it true that networks and denominations fail? Yes, in, including the ones that we're a part of. Again, I'm not aware. Like, Let me just be real crystal clear. If that issue comes up in this church, our first call is to the police, not the elders, all right? Just to be real clear, including if it's about me. My staff knows that, right? So um, just to be real clear. But like all of those things are true, and um, it is also true that Jesus died for the church. And it is also true that Jesus calls the church his bride. And while a lot of things on this earth will pass away when Jesus makes all things new again, the church remains. And it is also true that Christians are called by God to be a part of a local gospel preaching church. You cannot read the New Testament and come away with any other um, understanding of how Christians are to be involved with the church other than we're to be in it even though it's messy. And I think that it's a larger fundamental issue with the Christian life. Like how is it that you think about and engage with, deal with broken people and systems in the world? Do you just pull away and disengage with these things or are Christians called to be in the world but not of the world and I don't just mean the church like how is it that you think about and engage with your vocational calling when it's broken you know one of our friends who's with us this weekend is a teacher and she's so tired because the system that she's in is broken you know how, how do you deal with governments and court systems and the marketplace and media and like these things are not the way that I think God intended them to be. So, so what do we do as Christians? How do we think about and engage with those broken things when we can see the problems in them? And I think that includes the local church. Because if you're somebody who's been in church for any length of time, you know that like it's not perfect. Right? If you're somebody who's a guest and you're you like left your last church and you stopped in here this morning and you thought, okay, maybe this is the perfect church. Like you're going to be so disappointed. <laughs> like when you get to know us, you're going to like us, but then there's going to be some things where you're like, I don't know. 
you know, like they were just not that. And so I think that for Christians, the way that we have to start or the place that we have to start is we have to think about what is God's purpose and plan for this thing? What are the foundational principles here? How does God intend for this to work? I think that's true if you're an engineer or a school teacher or a police officer. Like, it doesn't really matter. You have to think about what, what is God's purpose and plan for this thing that I am involved in. And so what I want to do this morning is just show you two foundational principles about God's purpose and plan for the local church, in particular for how it is that the local church engages with the family. Right? So just two fundamentals. I understand there's brokenness. But what are these two foundational principles of the way that God intends for the church and the family to work together? The first one is this, that the church should be a priority for the family. Church should be a priority for the family. Deuteronomy 6 is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. In it, Moses calls the people of Israel to live their lives in response to God's character and in obedience to God's law. That's, base, that's the main point of Deuteronomy 6, that this is who God is, therefore live like that. that. That's the purpose of the chapter. But what's interesting, and the reason my mind kind of went to Deuteronomy 6 this week when I was wrestling with some of these things, is that Moses moves kind of seamlessly back and forth from the nation of Israel down to individual families. And he kind of bounces back and forth if you read the whole chapter, which we don't have time to do this morning. You can go back and read it this afternoon. But I don't think that's an accident that he's going, all of Israel, your family. All of Israel, he just moves back and forth. And I think that's intentional because I think that Moses is telling Israel, who are the people of God, we now call the people of God the church, he's saying to them, look, this should be a priority for your family. The church should be a priority for your family. Listen to verses 4 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now, just think about Anything in your life, it doesn't necessarily have to be spiritual things. If there's anything in your life that you are teaching diligently to your children, that you are regularly weaving into conversations at your home, that you are chatting to one another about while you're walking the dog, that you're talking about before bedtime, that you're meditating on in the morning, that you're wearing on your hand like maybe a bracelet that has some writing on it, or you've made it the lock screen on your phone so it's in front of your eyes all the time, or, or you're hanging it as a decorative sign in the kitchen, like whatever that thing or idea or person is, that is a priority for your family. Right? That doesn't matter what it is. It might be your favorite baseball team. Like, I don't know, but that's a priority. And so what Moses is saying and, and what Jesus would say to the church, to Christians is, the church should be that for you. 
mean, not the only, but it, it should be a priority. If you are a Christian, the church should be a priority for the family. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, and I know that some people in the room aren't, because in a room this size, there's always people who aren't Christians yet. This won't be true of you yet. But you should know that if you're considering the claims of Christ, if you're considering the gospel and the good news that Jesus died to absorb God's wrath over sin, that we might be forgiven and reconciled to him, and that he was raised again on the third day to prove that he was who he said he was, and he had the power to grant forgiveness and eternal life to those who would believe in him. If you're considering that, then you should know that God's expectation is that when you become a Christian, the church will be a priority in your family. Why? Well, first, because you're cultivating hearts. You're cultivating hearts. This is just the reality. Every family of every kind, everywhere, is cultivating the hearts of those who are a part of it. You know why my girls love Clemson and Kentucky football? Because we've cultivated their heart to love Clemson and Kentucky football. Okay, like, why do my girls love musicals and reading and Boykin Spaniels and Star Wars and Harry Potter? Because their parents have cultivated their hearts towards those things, and they like they're on the radio and they're on the TV, and like these are the things. And so there are things that you love specifically because your family of origin cultivated those things in your heart. Yes? And the opposite can be true too. Because sometimes trauma and dysfunction in families cultivates a heart a certain way. So undoubtedly, there are some of you who are advocates for certain causes. Maybe you raise money for certain causes. Some of you probably have even chosen specific careers because you grew up with something that was a problem and you wanted to be a part of the solution. Right? Your heart was cultivated to fix this traumatic, broken thing that you grew up with. And you said other people shouldn't have to put up with this. So families are cultivating hearts all the time, for better or for worse, in good ways and bad ways. That's why I get so very frustrated when I hear people say that they're going to let their children decide on their own about God. Like, I, people say that to me all the time. Well, you know, we're just going to let, you know, little Johnny and Susie decide when they're old enough. That's foolishness. I've lived here since 1997. Never one time, ever, have I had somebody say, well, you know, we're Gamecocks, and we love South Carolina, but we're just going to wait and let Johnny decide how he feels about Clemson until he's older. <laughs> Nobody's ever said that to me. Never one. I've never in my life have I heard a parent say, well, you know, we feel like bathing is important, but we're just going to let her decide how she feels about personal hygiene when she's old enough to really understand the benefits of like, what are you talking about? Nobody has ever said to me, well, math has really benefited us, but we'll just let our children decide. Well, that's foolishness. That's nonsense to say that. Everything a family does cultivates the heart of those who are in it, not just of children, but of parents as well of extended families and close friends who you invite into your home as if they are family. And so then you get to Exodus 6 and you see where verse 5 commands, commands Christians to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And verse 6 says the commands of the Lord 
They shall be on your heart. Well, how does that work? How can you be commanded to love? Like, how, how do I get the law of the Lord, the, the, the commandments of the Lord into my heart? Like, that seems like a hard rule to follow. Well, one way that you do it is you make sure that the church is a priority in your family. Because your heart and your spouse's heart, your closest friend's hearts, your children's hearts are going to be bent towards what you prioritize. That's true in every other area of your life, and it's true in your spiritual life as well. The hearts of the people closest to you will be bent towards what you prioritize. And I'll say this, don't expect your spouse, your children, your friends to prioritize God more than you do. Especially men. Like, do not expect your wife and your children to prioritize the Lord more than you do. That's just not going to happen. You're, you're going to cultivate their hearts. And I would also say, don't wait to begin cultivating the hearts of the people in your family. Because the world's not waiting. The world doesn't wait to cultivate their heart towards binge drinking and credit card debt and sexual experimentation. It's on the TV as soon as they can stare at it. It's in every message that they get. The world is not waiting to come after the hearts of the people in your family. Why are you waiting? You're cultivating hearts. So one of the reasons you prioritize the church for the family is because you're cultivating hearts of people in the family. Okay, preacher, so what you're saying then is every person raised in the church loves the Lord for their whole life. No. We all know people who raised in the church, and at some point, perhaps through some traumatic experience, perhaps just because of the enticement of sin, perhaps just because of apathy, they've walked away. But I promise you this. I promise you that the people you love have a radically greater likelihood of loving God if you prioritize the church in your life and in the life of your family. They will have a radically greater opportunity or likelihood of loving the Lord. So the church should be a priority in your family because you're cultivating hearts, but also because you're modeling habits. You're modeling habits. In his book, Atomic Habits, James Clear, James Clear writes about the power of feedback loops. Um, this is early in the book. He talks about the power of feedback loops. And one of the things he says is, quote, your habits shape your identity and your identity shapes your habits. It's a two-way street. So families like people have habits that both shape and reflect the identity of the family. Right? Churches have habits that shape and reflect the identity of the people who attend that church. Your business has organizational habits, right? We all understand this just kind of implicitly. So families does too. So I would say, for example, if your family eats together, vacations together, always spends holidays together, that says something about the value and the priority that you put on relationships with one another, both your nuclear family and your extended family. If your family runs charity 5Ks and does beach cleanup projects together, well, that says something about 
how you view your spare time and how you view the community that you live in, right? So habits just, they shape and they reflect the identity of the family. And the same thing is true for the spiritual habits in your life or the lack thereof. Families have spiritual habits. God has built spiritual rhythms into the weekly lives of people. This is just the way that he created things. He modeled it for us first. He created all things, and then he rested at the end of that cycle on the seventh day. He includes this rhythm of spiritual habits into the Ten Commandments when he requires people to Sabbath one day a week. He affirmed these spiritual rhythms and spiritual habits in the life and ministry of Jesus, and then he has continued it in the patterns that were established by the early church. The spiritual habits are built into the fabric of the way, not only that God made the whole universe, but the way that he intends his people to function as well. So let me just be as transparent and honest with you um, as I can. Some of you all know, like, um, God kind of radically changed our life um, in, the, in around 2009. He called us out of the marketplace and into ministry, and um, we really didn't see that coming. So my children were um, a little older. Now they're 21, 18, 16. Um, but so we kind of already had spiritual family habits established. Um, and so like, I, we didn't do family worship time at home. Um, and we didn't do family devotionals at home. And I've borne a lot of guilt about that because, you know, I go off to pastor conferences and like all the things that they say, well, if you're really going to be a good pastor and you're really going to be a, be a good dad, then you just have to do these things. And they're not actually things that are in the Bible. They're just kind of cultural things. And I would feel weighed down by guilt in that because I feel like, man, I don't do those things. And, you know, am I an imposter and I have not set my kids up? It's like we didn't have those habits. But I'll tell you what we did do. We talked about spiritual things at home all the time. The gospel was woven into the way that we were talking. I'm talking about before we were in ministry. Right? It was woven into the way that we talked to our children about the world and about their behavior and about the reasons that we did things, the reason that we apologized. Like that was super normative in our family. The gospel in church wasn't just a Sunday thing. Right? And I think we did a pretty good job at that. And we prioritized church in our family a long time before I was on staff at one. It was just part of the habits of the rhythm of the way that we did things. We haven't always done things perfect as a family. Um, but there are a few things that we've done okay. You know, and, and, and a few things that have borne fruit in our life. So what I would say and my encouragement to you is that, um, like... <clears throat> Don't worry about all of the things that you haven't done or that you don't do now. Focus on being really committed to the things you can do. And make those things habits in the life of your family. And you won't be perfect doing it. Our family wasn't perfect doing it either. And all of the habits you won't do all the time. And when the ones you do won't stick to everybody in your family. But this is true of everything else, of exercise, of the way you eat, of like right? It's okay. It's a home, not a prison, right? But if you don't cultivate those habits, like whatever it is that you do in your family, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit because you're here on a holiday weekend, right? But other people listen to the podcast, you know? It's like, man, I'm really glad I wasn't there for that one, you know? <clears throat> it's okay. But like you're modeling some type of habit, 
right? And, and so, you know, your children pick up on those things. Your spouse, your parents, your friends, they, they pick up on those things. So what I would say is that by intentionally or unintentionally, you are modeling habits for the people around you. So when you make Sunday mornings a habit, when you make sacrificial giving like Josh talked about a habit, when you make praying or attending a small group or going on a spiritual retreat or sending your children to spiritual camps, if you make the gospel being a part of everyday conversations in your home, you are, if you make the church a priority for your family, but you're modeling habits that will do two things. They will shape the identity of your family, and then eventually they'll reflect the identity of your family. So is the church imperfect? You better believe it is. Absolutely. Is it led by imperfect people? Yes. But it should still be a priority for the family because hearts are being cultivated and habits are being modeled that are eventually going to lead people to the foot of the cross to see the glory of the gospel of Christ. This is what they do. So the church should be a priority for the family. Second principle. The church should be a partner with the family. Should be a partner with the family. If you keep reading down through Deuteronomy 6, you get down to verses 20 through 25. Listen, I'm going to read this. Listen for how the nuclear family is woven into the larger faith family, which then was Israel and now is the church. Just listen for that. Verse 20. When your son asks you in a time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? That's nuclear family. Yes? Thank you. Whoever was in the back was this. Thanks, good. Then I know it's a holiday. Some of you are like, brother, we are here. That's about all you can ask. I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. The boat's gas. We parked it at the gas station so you wouldn't see it, but we just need you to wrap it up, brother. Like, I'm here, right? I'm going to keep rolling. Verse 21. <laughs> that wasn't in my manuscript to you. Um, verse 21. Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. That's the faith family. Right? That's the larger faith family. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. All that's faith family. That's all bigger picture. Verse 25 and it will be righteousness for us. Now we're back to the nuclear family because God saves individuals, not nation states. Right? It'll be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So from the earliest formation of the people of God, there is this assumption, of, there's this design that the church should be a partner with the family. And so where is the life of faith lived out? It's lived out in individual nuclear families, no matter what they look like. Okay, well, where will that nuclear family's faith be formed and rooted and nourished? It's in the collective faith family. 
See, so neither the individual family nor the larger faith family are designed to function without the other. They go together. Why? Well, two reasons. First, because you need us and we need you. Why should the church and the family partner together? Because you need us and we need you. No matter what your family looks like, you might be single or single again or widowed. You might be married without children. You might be married and have children at home. You might be married and be an empty nester. It doesn't matter. You need the church. We have something that you don't have. Nobody, no family can get through life in this broken, jacked up world alone. You can't do it alone. We all need other people. And if you are a Christian, or if you would become a Christian, then I would suggest to you that a pretty good chunk, if not most of those people, should also be Christians. So they can reinforce the worldview you have and help you to think rightly about things when the world tries to pull you away from everything that's godly. And so like, you need someone other than you to reinforce spiritual truths to your children. I'm a pastor. My voice is not enough for my girls. They need you to reinforce what dad says at home. They already think I'm a little kooky anyway. Right? You need someone other than your spouse to help carry you through seasons of change. Y'all, if you're married, your spouse cannot be everything for you. They cannot be lover and best friend and counselor and coach and mentor. They can't. It's too much. You need other people around you. You need someone other than that one friend who can challenge you when sin creeps into your life. You need the church, the body of Christ. You need to come in here on a Sunday morning and hear other people singing truths about God when you don't feel it. You need to come into church and sit under the preached word of God so that it sounds louder in your heart than the voice of the world. You need to see in real life marriages reconciled and addictions broken and illnesses healed so that you believe God is at work. It doesn't just need to be something that you see on the internet. You need to know people and point to them and say, God did that. And if he did that in their life, he can do this in my life too. And you need to know that you're not the only one who struggles. You're not the only one who has questions. You need other people to pray over you when you're weak and to cry with you when you grieve and to celebrate with you when you're triumphant. You need us. And we need you. The church needs you too. The church as a whole needs you as an individual. I say this to people all the time, that if you feel like God has called you to make King's Cross your home, I genuinely believe that it's because you have something that we need. There's something that God has given you, some spiritual gifts, some wisdom, some energy, some ideas. There is some skill, something that you have that God intends for you to use for the building up of the local church that is King's Cross. We need your spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each 
is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each, if you're a Christian, you have been given something. And you may say, well, I don't really know what it is. Come talk to us. We'll be happy to explore that some with you. But to each has been given a manifestation of the Spirit. So we need people who can teach and people who can exhort and people who have a timely prophetic word. We need people of mercy and faith and service. And we need administrators and discerners and prayers. Like, we need that. We need you to serve with us. The reality is that it takes a lot to pull this thing off that we do. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of hands. It takes a lot of ideas. And we need yours. We need people who are willing to take the posture of Christ and come to serve, not just to be served. We need your generosity. Josh talked about this earlier, but generosity is is both a command of all Christians in the Scripture and a spiritual gift to some. And so we need your generosity to hire high-impact staff, to equip people to do the work of the ministry, to have facilities that can serve the community around us, to be able to, to be generous to our ministry partners, to reach people who are far from God but close to us. We need that. We need your wisdom. If you're an older saint, can I just say to you that younger saints don't know what they're doing? And they don't know that they don't know what they're doing. They need you. (laughs) They need you to speak into their life. Look, man, if you're somebody who's been through some stuff, don't feel like the church is a place where you have to cover that up in shame. The church is a place where somebody else needs to know how you got through it. Somebody else needs to know, here's what God did in my life that pulled me through that time when I've been through what you're going through. And there's hope. And they need to hear that from you. We need your perspective on life. You understand that it's really good to know other people's perspective on life? Older people need the perspective of younger people and vice versa. White people need the perspective of minorities and vice versa. Married people need the perspective of single people and vice versa. Native Charlestonians need the perspective of transplants. Yes, you do. <laughs> okay? And I'm married to one, and I'm a transplant, so I, I can say that, right? This is church. You can be honest. And vice versa, right? If you're a transplant like me, don't come down here telling everybody what to do. You left where you were from. Evidently, the people who were here are doing okay. You need their perspective, okay? It goes both ways. People born in America need the perspective of immigrants and vice versa. Democrats and Republicans New Christians and non-Christians, men and women, we need each other. You and your experience in life are not a complete picture of God's greatness, of His grace, or of His wisdom. We need you, and you need us, and we all need Jesus. And if you think that's not true, you need to repent of your pride and arrogance, and ask God to humble you as quickly as he possibly can. Because scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So one reason the church should be a partner with the family is quite simply because no family has everything it needs, and no church has everything it needs. Because God has designed us to be dependent creatures, dependent on him first, and then on one another. You need us, and we need you. And second, We all need hope. We all need hope. 
Where do you turn when another young person shoots up a schoolroom and kills 18 children? Or another racist shoots up a grocery store? Where do you look for hope? Where, where does your heart go when that cancer-fighting five-year-old that you follow on TikTok dies? Like, who do you call when you get the worst call of your life? We all need hope. So where do you find hope when that app that you look at all day long is just filled day after day after day with anger and hatred and story after story after story of despair and sin and disillusionment. Where do you look for hope? You look into Washington, D.C.? Like you look into Hollywood for hope? You look into the liquor store? Or that person at your office who says, you know, don't worry about it, it'll just be our secret. Where, where do you go for hope? Where are the people in your life who lift you up and remind you of God's goodness and his steadfast love and faithfulness and his son's sacrifice on your behalf? The people you follow on Instagram doing that for you? The latest Angry, virtue-signaling, hashtag mob. They lifting you up, pointing you to God, telling you it's going to be okay, giving you sources of hope. Because I looked at the news, and I've been on social media, and there ain't a lot of hope. It's mostly anger and sin. That's what most of it is. We all need hope. And we need people in our lives who know We need hope so they can give it to us, so they can remind us of it. We need people who can tell us and remind us that there is hope. And there's an empty grave that proves there's hope. We need people to remind us that there is one who has overcome this hopeless world. The church should be a partner with the family so that the family can be reminded of truths like Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The family needs to be reminded of verses like Colossians 1, 27. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's most of us, are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And your family needs to be reminded of 1 Timothy 4.10. We toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God. And instead of trying to have people in your life who tell you that all that toil and strive shouldn't manifest itself in your life, and if you just read this or lose that, or if you just, no, 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 no. There's going to be toil and strife, but our hope's set somewhere else. And you need people to remind you of that in your family. doesn't matter what phase of life you're in, what your marital status may be, how far along you are in your spiritual journey. You may not even be on a spiritual journey yet. But you need the hope that is found in Christ alone. 
It's the hope, as Titus 1, 2 says, of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And so this is just what we do. We partner together for the sake of the gospel and for each other. But to do that, to get the benefits that God has planned for you in that, you have to prioritize the church in your life, and you have to commit to partnering with the church. The people is what I mean, right? with, the, with the people of the church, not the building. You commit to those things. The church is a priority, and I'm going to be a partner for the sake of the other people who are here, for your own sake, and for the sake of the advancement of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ. This is what we do. That's the church's role in the family. Let's pray. Father, as believers, we lament when we see people who claim the name of Christ doing things that are not Christ-like, and yet we cling to the hope of glory that is your Son, Jesus Christ, in us. And we believe that the bride of Christ, the church, will one day be made perfectly pure and presented to your Father. And so we ask for help in our hearts that we might not be distracted and overcome by the world, but that we would prioritize the church. And I ask that you would make us a church where people feel that there are other people around them who are partnering with them to remind them of the gospel, to build one another up, to reach those who are far from you but close to us. Would you help us in these things? as individuals and as a church. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.